Philippians 3. Let's go to 3, chapter 3, verse, verses 1 through 9. 3, 1 through 9. Finally, my brothers and sisters, what's the major theme that Paul has in this letter? Rejoice! Rejoice in the Lord! It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, presumably the same things being rejoice. And this is an interesting statement, and it is a safeguard for you. Have you ever thought of joy or rejoicing as something that is is protecting your soul? Verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to Torah, a Pharisee, as for zeal, a persecutor of the church as for righteousness according to Torah or legalistic righteousness. I was faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. You ever, you ever notice when you read through the Bible how Paul never talks about his biological family, his extended family? It's because he lost his family. You know how Paul never talks about his, his old Jewish friends? Because they lost every single one of them. And a whole lot more. All things. And I consider all of that stuff. I considered it, it skubala, which is variously translated, if you have your King James Version of the Bible, dung. I consider it, other um, translations, waste, feces, that I may gain Jesus Christ and be found in Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from Torah or Torah observance, but that which is through faith in Christ. Or, another way that's translated, that's that which is through the faithfulness of Christ. Scholars disagree. The righteousness that, of God that comes from God or is of God's and is by faith. That's the end. Uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to start with a comment, which is not the most important part of the passage. It's not the main point of the passage but it's one that I think needs to be made. And then I'm going to move on to the main idea of the passage. But the the first comment is verse 2. Verse 2 sort of catches the reader by surprise. So if you've been moseying your way along through the letter to the Philippians, it's a very, it's a quaint little letter about uh, full of gratitude and calls to rejoice, very warm, happy. We talk about humility. We talk about the humility of Jesus And then you reach verse 2, and out of the blue, Paul starts calling people names. (laughs) You notice that? He's like, watch out for the dogs, mutilators, wicked, evil men. Out of nowhere, he starts, did you you really just call another person a dog? Is 
is what a, a modern reader feels like when you're, when you're going through the letter. And this, just to be sure we are all on the same page, it's not the Westminster Kennel Club version of that animal. These are the wild, mongrel dogs of the first century, which were nasty creatures. They had rabies. They ate garbage. They were, uh, if you, they, they were terrible, so to speak. I mean, so how do you go from a letter of joy and warmth and happiness and gratitude to this? What is going on? Well, you've been in the front yard before, and your kids, you're, you're having a warm and joyful rejoicing time playing in the front yard, and all of a sudden, one of them runs out into the street, and you see a car coming, and you just scream, stop! You, uh, you can't deliver a warning without raising your voice, can you? Warning! I have seen this happen in other churches where uh, rival missionaries like wiggle their way into perfectly health, healthy congregations, which were my churches, and they start poisoning my churches. Very aggressive, persuasive salesmen who come in and tell you that faith in Jesus as Messiah is not enough. They will tell, especially a group of people like us here, I doubt there are too many of us with any Jewish ancestry, they will tell us that uh, you need to follow the dietary restrictions in order to be saved. You need to be you need to have your foreskin cut off in order to be saved. You need to follow the certain aspects of Torah. And, and if you don't, then you are a goyim, is what they would call you, an outsider. See, they were the ones who actually started the insults to begin with. You're um, unclean, untouchable, uh, mudblood, to take a line out of Harry Potter, uh, you're not a blue blood. You're not a pure blood. You're not a pure, good Jewish specimen. You don't eat the, the ceremonial foods. Then you're a garbage eater. And so one of the things we have to remember is we're stepping into a conversation 2,000 years old into a situation that uh, a conflict that was already going on. Um, Paul is sick of seeing healthy churches get poisoned by this message. And frankly, he's tired of seeing the kids that he loves, the members of these churches, so repeatedly insulted by these rival missionaries. So, so admittedly, it seems strange to us that a man riding under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would trade insult for insult. It just, it feels foreign. And I suggest that it actually, one of the reasons it feels foreign is there is a cultural non-familiarity that's going on. If you have ever watched two rappers in a rap-off before, if you like they're both on the stage, there's, there's a culture associated with that. You, you try to shame the, guy, the other guy off the stage through rhymes and wordplay. And uh, there's a lot of rhyme and wordplay going on in verses 2 and, and following. I won't go into to all of that. But, you, but there's wordplay in the insults. Quote, Paul adopts the rhetorical techniques common in his culture to put his opponents in their place, and especially to show the church that uh, this is dangerous stuff. Okay, I called them a mutilated dog, but I did so because this is dangerous stuff. Um, and if you let it into, into your church, into your system, it is like spiritual crack, it is like meth, it will kill the gospel, it will kill you, and it will kill your children. So, 
Don't let it happen. Okay, that's my, my quick explanation. Now, the genius of what Paul does is no sooner does he call his opponents dogs, the rhetorical genius is that he, he turns the tables and what does he say in the very next verses? He says, I once was a dog too. I once was a dog too. In fact, what I just described to you was me. Uh, I've spent so much of my life thinking that I was this religious peacock strutting around thinking that, that I was the, the man, all the while I now see I was a zoological lowlife. <laughs> I was this mangy scavenger at the bottom of the animal kingdom. And the rest of the passage is Paul's unpacking, basically how he began to see his life differently, how he moved from thinking he was a peacock to actually realizing he was a dog. So let's do that. This is kind of fun. Yeah, I'm going to do a, a thought experiment. I pl- I've played this thought experiment on you before, but you don't remember it, so I can do it again. <laughs> okay, imagine that just prior to your birth, you were required to pick at random one of seven billion tickets that were contained in a giant hat. Now, that number seven billion corresponds, of course, to the entirety of the world's population. The ticket that you pick will determine all of the things about yourself that really makes you you. Your your race, your gender, your nationality, your natural abilities, your health. Like that ticket is you. Are you going to be rich? Are you going to be Zimbabwean? Are you going to be brilliant or crippled? You get one ticket, and that ticket happens to be the most important thing that is ever going to happen in your life. Now, right now, you're, you are holding a ticket. Just put a mirror up to yourself. You do have a ticket. And I'm going to make you an offer. I'm going to go to that 7 billion uh, ticketed hat. I'm going to pull out 100 tickets at random, and I will give you the opportunity to take the ticket that you're holding right now and turn it in for an opportunity to take another out of the 100. Now, the question is, do you make that deal? Do you make that deal? Uh, do you read the fine print at the bottom of the offer? Because of those 100 tickets, only five of those tickets are going to be Americans, not surprisingly. Uh, 90 of those tickets will be fairly impoverished. Uh, I mean, we know that the minimum wage worker in America makes more than 90% of the world's population. Do you make that deal? You might draw Switzerland. <laughs> like You might draw uh, the body that you always wanted, the mind that you always desired, you know, nestled away in a chalet in the Swift, Swiss Alps. But, but do you take that risk? And I guess my suspicion is that few, if any of us, would, would play that roulette game because we know that we are, we're totally like the most lucky of the, of the luckiest. And we got the, we're in the top 1% of the luckiest in the world. And we have so much to give thanks to God for. Well, basically, Paul's ticket was that in spades. The, the ticket that Paul got when he came into the world, he describes it for you in verse 5. Let's look at that together. He gives you this list in verse 5 of 
all of the privileges and much of the list, I want you to see this, is stuff that he couldn't take personal credit for. I can't take credit for um, the fact that I was born in Columbia, South Carolina to uh, Dale and Carol Cheney. I mean, and, and I can't take credit for any of my genetics or any of that. Well, Paul couldn't take credit for the fact that in verse 5, he was circumcised on the eighth day. That was out of his hands. <laughs> but he had parents who did it by the book. They, they followed the rules. He was born into the, the people of Israel. He was of the, the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, why was the tribe of Benjamin significant? Well, it was, the, it was the tribe of the first king. What was the name of the first king of Israel? What was the name of this guy that was born in Tarsus? They named him after... Yeah, they named him after the first king of Israel. And I was all that, he says. And I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Um, But his point in it is simply that all of those privileges, like being the most privileged, top 1% of 1%, all of those privileges didn't do him a lick of good. You would think the very things that would make my life especially good and, and special, the things that should lead me to God. you think that having such conscientious Jewish parents would lead him to Yahweh of, of Israel? And he says, that these things, I, I can now see, they actually led me further away from God than, than toward God. And when I read this this week, I, it struck me that there is a razor-thin line between what you and I think is spiritually advantageous and what is actually um, spiritually terribly, spiritually disadvantageous. The, the, The line separating our advantages and our disadvantages is razor thin. Um, And the tickets that we're holding in our hands this morning, uh, I wouldn't trade my ticket in for anything. I... I wouldn't trade my natural abilities in. I was the kid who won fifth grade field day. (laughs) Field day for me in elementary school was just like Christmas, the best day of the year. And and in fifth grade, I I cleaned house. I took, I mean, I took all the red, all the blue uh, first place ribbons. And then sixth grade rolled around and I just got cloppered. I didn't win anything. But I, so I want you to ask yourself this question. Um, I know you're grateful for your ticket, probably grateful for your ticket, but can you think of ways that the privileges you have right now, how they might have led you away from God? Like, you wouldn't uh, mail in your affluence, would you? But or can we think of ways that our affluence kind of deadens us, makes it more difficult for us to feel our need for God? Um, what are some other ways that... that that's the case. Can you think of the materiality of our culture? The fact that we're just not supernaturalists? Nobody native to our culture believes in the supernatural. We're totally, we're all about what I see, what I can see, touch, taste, and feel. That's the only thing that I believe in. We don't believe in spirits for the most part. We don't believe in a spiritual world. One of the biggest spiritual disadvantages, I think, of being an American is that we are, we are convinced, it's just part of the American way of life, that to be an American means that you're a very loving person. There was a, a lady home, uh, ladies 
Home Journal survey done just a little while back asked all of its respondents, are you a loving person? 95% of them are like, yes. <laughs> I will love it. I will. It does not matter your race or your creed or your nationality. We love everybody. Uh, you know, the whole impossible law of love thing that Jesus talks about, Americans got that down. Like, have you ever met an American who said, who's really troubled by the fact that I'm, I'm just not very loving? Um, no, that's, we, I love people of different races. Of course, I'm, that's just part of, that's the American way of life. Now, the irony is that if you, if you talk to somebody else in another part of the world and you ask them the ladies' home journal survey question, are Americans uh, n- naturally loving people? What do you, the rest of the world starts laughing at you. <laughs> you know, as if. Americans have some special, um, yeah, I mean, Americans bomb entire cities back into the Stone Age. <laughs> They're not that loving. Or do this. Let's try this exercise. Take your bulletin back to Psalm 14 before the confession of sin. And tell me this. Because what I'm, what I'm really trying to do is just to give you an idea of this is the ethos that is part of our ticket. Tell me, does any American believe this? That the American says in his heart, there is no God. That the American is corrupt. That his deeds are evil. There is is no Boisean who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on mankind to see if there are any in Boise who understand. Are there any in Boise who seek after God? But they have all gone astray. They are all alike perverse. There's no one, not a single person living on Bogus Basin Road who does good. No, not one. Does anybody in our ethos naturally think that? And the answer is obvious. Nobody thinks. So do you real, what I'm really saying is part of the American way of life, part of the way we assess ourselves is dramatically different than how the God of the universe assesses ourselves. Um, God looks at you and me quite differently than me looks at me or you looks at me or, or any of us. And if Paul were alive today, I think he would warn us and the Holy Spirit would try his best to warn us that the advantages that you have create large blind spots in your soul which really compromise your ability to know the truth about yourself and the truth about God. And the truth about Jesus. Let's go to the second point, which is, verse 5 again, it's not just the privileges that Paul gives that he says, I consider loss. It was also his religious performance. His accomplishments that that he had that... um, he says, I, I, I consider, this is a loss. One of the a great examples I came across this week. I have a preacher that you've never heard of who is British, because you know I'm an Anglophile. I love to hear British accents. Anybody here heard of Charlie Scrine besides Brian? <laughs> you don't count? <laughs> Charlie Scrine. He is at St. Helens Bishop Gate in London. Great preacher. I like to listen to great preachers. And... He tells, I didn't know this about him, but he had a Roman Catholic mother and a Church of England clergyman father. I don't know how they ever married, but 
they, made, they were v- both very devout, and they made a vow to God that our son is going to be both. Like, he's going he's gonna to get the very best of both. And so what that meant was that every Sunday, he went to Mass with his mom and to, uh, to church with his, his, his dad. Uh, what it meant was that on the day of his baptism, there were two priests there, and they were like, you know, haggling, pulling each, him up, <laughs> back. And, they were fighting over him to see who could baptize him. He said, I was at every service. I celebrated every feast day. Like, like if, there was a, if there was a feast or fast day in the Roman calendar, well, I was fasting then. If there was a feast or fast day in the English Church of Anglican calendar, I was always either eating or not eating for King George and St. Anne. <laughs> and I, I calculated that I had attended... 2,000 worship services by the age of 10. And as a result, he was really good at, at Sunday school questions and, and Bible trivia. It was very, you could just see, hear that a kid who got all of that, he, he, was, he was pretty sure that he was, he was quite the religious, the religious dude. Um, and you know that type of kid. He never misses a Sunday morning worship service. He reads his Bible every day. He never says a cuss word. He never breaks his chastity pledge. He doesn't listen to secular music. He's never watched an R-rated movie except for Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. (laughs) Right? You know that kind of kid. And you know, um, maybe you are that kind of kid. you, You know that the propensity of your heart is to take religious accomplishments and turn them into a trophy case. And you... You, you, you bring people in to see, or you bring God in to see the trophy case, full of your religious accomplishments. And that's what Paul said, I did. He said, I, I was, um, in regard to Torah observance, I was faultless in terms of my zeal. I was, I was right there persecuting the church it's for legalistic right, righteousness. I... <clears throat> So the way I told you last week, a lot of times when I'm reading the Bible, I try to get images. I guess I'm more of a visual thinker than I ever really quite knew. I try to get an image of like what... Do you remember last week when we talked about sorrow upon sorrow? How when you lose a, a loved one, it's sort of like sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. And you just get this tidal wave of, of sorrow, sorrow. This week I had with verse 5 a Ken Burns documentary interview shot with... The Apostle Paul, where like the camera zooms in and he's sitting with he's sitting in some study with a library behind him. And at the end of verse five, Paul says, all of my advantages obscured the simple fact that I couldn't have been more dead wrong. I was dead wrong. I was so unmistakably wrong. My heart was so far removed from the heart of God. I was so blinded. I was so sure of my own goodness and the righteousness of my position. I was, I thought I was the religious peacock. I thought I was the best thing since sliced bread. I knew that I was right. I persecuted the church. When the Son of God came into the world, I said, he's a dog. And his followers are dogs. And I was happy when they crucified him. And I was happy 
when they stoned the rest of them? I know that it's not going to be nearly as dramatic for you as it was for the Apostle Paul, but can you see how how your, your own achievements might just deaden your ability to either see your need for Christ or the glories and riches, or Paul's language, the surpassing greatness of Christ? Can you see, like, I know PlayStation is more fun than church. I, I... for you to be able to like win that war of witchcraft or whatever trophy uh, competition, you've got to spend a lot of time. I mean, look, Xbox is more fun than the Lord's Supper. I, I, li- I like the NFL more than I like to listen to sermons. Um, can you just see, and maybe that's not the best example of it, but just how all the things that you have and all the things that you put your energy in and all the things that you try to prop your life up and and make it happy and meaningful can just deaden you to the fact that you you really need a Savior. You're really wrong about how badly you need a Savior. Okay, Game 5, 2011 World Series. Game 5 was held at Rangers Ballpark in Arlington, Texas, and Matt Chandler... The uh, pastor of Village Church, Mega Church in Dallas, gets a call from the St. Louis Cardinals and, and says, Hey, we'd like you to come in and do our pregame chapel before game five of the World Series. He's like, Okay, I'm, I'm down with that. So he goes in at 3 30. He gets to tour the locker room and meet all of the players. And the Cardinals at that time had a lot of Christian, apparently, at least purported to be, really solid Christian guys. Albert Poolholz. Adam Wainwright. Um, here are some of the other ones. Matt Holliday, David Freeze, about a, a, about a dozen guys who are like, they were solid believers. And they all follow Matt Chandler into chapel. He gets up and he opens his Bible and he says, okay, I'm going to preach from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm just going to tell you the gospel. And he gives what I think was a pretty standard you know, gospel sermon before Game 5 of the World Series, and then he gets, like every great preacher, to the final punchline to, to drive in his point. He says, guys, you are about to go out there in front of 50,000 adoring and hostile fans, and your face is going to be projected onto, into 50 million uh, living rooms in just a couple of hours, and the game-winning home run you might hit will guarantee you free meals for the rest of your life in every St. Louis restaurant and people will, if you pull it off, people will name their children after you. And so what I just want you to remember is this. You are not awesome. You are a grown man who throws a ball. Big whoop. <laughs> it's not that great. You're not, a, you're not a brain surgeon. You're not bringing clean water to entire African villages. And I'm not saying that baseball is stupid, he went on. But if you think that for just a second that the million-dollar contracts or the beautiful women giving you their cell phone numbers or the envious gaze of every little boy who walks up to you with a piece of cardboard that has a picture of you on it and just wants you to give them your autograph, if you think for just a moment that you are awesome because of all these things that you've been given or accomplished... You're a fool. Because only God is awesome. 
And you are merely a small piece in his design to redeem this world. If I could have been a fly on the wall to hear that sermon like that, that would have taken the cake. What was he doing? Well, I realized he's doing the exact same thing in in many respects that, that Jesus did to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. He was telling them to reassess who you are. Reassess not only your priorities of life, but like do the really hard work of reassessing your, your entirety. I think a lot of us will, we will reassess our life priorities, and we will do so when we get the tumor diagnosis, either a, a, a positive or false negative type of, or when the automobile hack accident happens and it hits us in the back quarter panel and it doesn't hit us on the driver's side door. It's like moments, near-death experiences cause you to, oh, I'm going to think over my life again. I'm going to think over my priorities. But what happened to Paul was actually considerably bigger and different. When he met the resurrected Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he didn't start simply say, I've got to rethink my schedule on Monday. He said, I've got to rethink why I exist. And everything that I have thought was valuable or non-valuable, I've got to rethink all of that. Have you ever gotten, I'll ask you this question, have you ever gotten to the point where you have said, personally said, verse 7, let's read it, take your Bibles. And I'm almost done, so don't worry. (laughs) Have you ever said that whatever was to my profit... I now consider loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. Have you ever said, verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have lost all things. Have you ever said, verse 9, and, or the, the rest of 8 and 9, and, and been even profane, I consider them a pile of dung that I may gain Christ to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Most people today don't believe that they can be right with God only by the gift of someone else's righteousness. Most people are like, it's good, I'm good, you're good, we're all good. They don't think of themselves as impossibly needy, needing a righteous standing to stand before a holy and righteous God. And and my, my prayer for us is that you would meet Christ, and he would cause you to totally reassess up from down. I'll never forget the day, last very short story, I'll never forget the day back in Mississippi when I was in seminary. Uh, A good friend of mine, he was in his 40s, and he was a professor at a local university. Um, I'll never forget the day that he walked up to me and said, Brad, My parents are not my parents. I just found out. I'm 45 years old. I just found out my parents are not my parents. I'm adopted. I'm 45 years old. I have a PhD. And I just found out that that nobody knows who my biological father is. And my mother was a woman of ill repute who put me up for adoption. I just found that out. Now, do you think that'll cause a guy to, to do like a, who am I? What am I? Why am I here? What? All those things that I thought I knew about myself, I don't really know. Has Jesus ever done that to you? Caused you to reassess? You're not so great. You throw a ball. You play a... You pick strings on a violin. 
You deliver babies. You, you cut grass. You're not so great. But you are a small piece in God's design to redeem this world. And the only way like you participate in that is by being first redeemed yourself. Amen.